Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. It's now 25 years since Hong Kong returned to Chinese sovereignty. The agreement Beijing struck was that Hong Kong's way of life would remain unchanged for 50 years until 2047. So we're halfway there. All that changed, though, in 2020 when national security legislation was imposed on Hong Kong. Some would argue, however, that Beijing's interference with Hong Kong's way of life started much, much earlier. Today, I'm joined by three people who've written extensively on Hong Kong. First, Ho Feng Hong of John Hopkins University, whose magisterial work "City on the Edge: Hong Kong Under Chinese Rule" is newly out. We're also joined by journalist Didi Kirsten Tatlow, who's a senior correspondent with Newsweek, who recently wrote a piece called "How Hong Kong Was Lost" for Project Synopsis. And finally, and slightly awkwardly,、um, joining us is. My co-host Louisa Lim, whose new book *Indelible City: Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong* is freshly out on the shelves. Louisa, I'll start with you. There's a really interesting convergence between your book and Ho Fong's book. You you both argue that Hong Kongers aren't this sort of placid, submissive, you know, economically motivated actors that they've been painted as in a lot of places, and you write about Hong Kong's very long history of resistance. I mean, can you describe for us how how far back that goes? I mean, it really goes a long way back, all the way back to the fifth century, where、uh, when a Guangzhou-based official called Lu Xun staged a rebellion against the Western Jin Dynasty and fled with his army of a hundred thousand men. To Lantau, where they, according to legend, maybe lived in caves. But you know, interestingly, Lantau has this place of a as a you know center of rebellion. And in the twelfth century, the islanders of Lantau staged a rebellion against the state salt monopoly. And again, central troops were sent to reassert control, and it was a really bloody battle. Um, so you know, Hong Kong has, over the years, had these repeated rebellions against central rule, and、um, also quite a lot of resistance to British rule. Which、uh, you know, there've been there were a lot of strikes and、um, protests, and even、uh, an uprising in eighteen ninety eight called the Six Day War. When villagers protested and against the lease of the new territories,、um, so it's really been a sort of place of rebellion for centuries. But perhaps that history was not it, it was not in the interests of the British or Chinese rulers of Hong Kong to kind of foreground that 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 history of rebellion. Well, it was useful to them possibly at a certain time in history, but maybe not so much now. I mean, Hong Kong on, on that theme. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in how you think that Beijing 
views Hong Kong's history through that lens. I mean, you 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 say that Hong that Beijing viewed the absorption of Hong Kong in the light of other historical precedents, particularly Tibet and the 17-point agreement that the Tibetans struck in 1951, but the very soon after um, was violated by Beijing. I mean, what evidence do we have that Beijing sees this in a, a longer historical sense? Yeah, Stephen, it's very interesting that I didn't realize uh, Beijing sees Hong Kong in the lens of uh, imperial governance of minority area until like about 20 years ago, so I got a hand of a textbook published in mainland China by one of the regional in Guizhou party apparatus publishers. Uh, it's about this like uh, Marx, Engels, Lenin, uh, Stalin, uh, Mao, and Deng Xiaoping on the minorities governance. And then in that book, actually it's interesting, it's talk about all this kind of uh, uh, from the Chinese imperial history to, uh, to Tibet, to Xinjiang, to all these nationalities, minorities area in mainland China. And then the book ends with uh, One Country, Two System and Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan. So it struck me in a way that uh, that actually from a CCP perspective that they are, have been seeing Hong Kong and uh, Macau and Taiwan from the lens of this kind of a national minority autonomy and governance structures. So And and then I dig deeper and then look at a lot of this kind of a Chinese official discourse uh, on Hong Kong and Taiwan and one country to systems. They're all in the context of this kind of imperial governance in the Qing dynasty. Uh, they first uh, established this what they call Tusi Native chieftain system to ground them autonomy to incorporate in the empire and then assimilate them and send Han migrants to uh, swarm the native population and then after a while they totally establish direct rule and then get get rid of the native chieftain um, and and uh, in nineteen early nineteen eighties when Deng Xiaoping uh, talked about one country two system he talked a lot about Tibet uh, in nineteen fifties and uh, it was later forgotten because in the early nineteen eighties when Deng Helping, we open the dialogue with the Dalai Lama government with the hope that one day Dalai Lama will be able to go back to China and strike a deal again with Beijing. So they were optimistic about Tibet at the time. So they talk about Tibet in the 1950s a lot when they talk about Hong Kong. But later that they stopped talking about it and people forgot. But they find it is in their mind all the time. And, and the bureaucratic thread that joins all those things, is, is that the United Front Work Department? Actually, it is not only the United Front Work Department. And uh, Deng Xiaoping is an interesting role because Deng Xiaoping was the Southwestern Bureau head of the Communist Party in the late 1940s and early 1950s because he is from Sichuan. And uh, Mao at that time delegated him to take charge of the negotiation with the, the Tibetan elite and Dalai Lama government. So he was quite in the front line in striking the deal, the 17-point agreement, and to absorb uh, Tibet into China. So it is not an accident that uh, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, when he invented this one-country-two-system formula, he really was based on his uh, experience uh, in Tibet early on in, in the early 1950s. And of course, then the Hong Kong Macau Affairs uh, Office in the State Council and all these kind of apparatus have been working in Hong Kong since after the 1967 communist rebellion in Hong Kong in the 70s, they have been starting to 
build networks of people among the elite. Uh, so they have a lot of work being done in the elite schools, targeting the high school students uh, who might have left-wing thoughts and things like that, and build these networks and recruit people into the party. So yeah, they have been working on it, getting ready uh, long before the negotiation between UK and, and, and China about Hong Kong future started. And Didi, if I can bring you in, I mean, in a very similar vein, you write about this process of repurposing Hong Kong's institutions, so infiltrating, shadowing, and then replacing them over decades. I mean, in your research, how, how early on did China start laying the groundwork for that process of repurposing? Well, I think actively I fixed on the year 1993 because that's when the institutions began to really be shaped and the Hong Kong people began to be put into these uh, mainland institutions in order to uh, create this sort of parallel government, which we then saw grow. But I think actually going, it goes back, the whole thing goes back quite a bit further. And I think, you know, um, there were people who left the mainland in 1949 for Taiwan, for example. They went. They then spent some time in Taiwan, and they would have been communists, um, and then came to Hong Kong. So they were in Hong Kong by the by the 50s, and they had very specific um, jobs to do. And one of them was to be spies, essentially, to to bring the CCP to Hong Kong at a moment where it really wasn't right. there in um, in great numbers, um, or at least not publicly there in great numbers, etc. Uh, the party's always been. In, um, in Hong Kong, if you like, but there are then these sort of steps up, you know, where, where their involvement deepens quite dramatically. And I think 1993 was was one of those steps because that was also the beginning, of course, of the whole so-called through train. It went through the handover because the um, the terms of office of these institutions in China are five years. So from 93, you go through to 1998 and boom, there you're already in post handover to Hong Kong. Louisa, to stay in the 1980s, your, your book has these fascinating interviews that were done with the SOAS political scientist Si, si Tsung in the 80s and 90s. And chief among them are interviews with these people called the unofficials, these unofficial members of the executive and legislative councils. I mean, what do we learn that we didn't know before from these interviews um, about the process of negotiating the joint declaration uh, which returned um, Hong Kong to China? What, uh, what's in those archives? Yeah, these archives are so interesting because for the first time we really get an inside view from the Hong Kong perspective of their, especially this sort of elite advisor perspective of their view of the British. And these were ideas and thoughts they couldn't share in their lifetimes because they'd signed the Official Secrets Act. And, but there were several things that we learned from them. I mean, one is actually this sort of extreme atmosphere of racism on the part of the British that I think pervaded many of their decisions um, you know, and even in one of the most important meetings with the unofficials, uh, the prime minister at the time, Margaret Thatcher, just before she was about to go to China to negotiate with Deng Xiaoping over Hong Kong, she said to them, uh, according to uh, one of them, uh, uh, whose name was Li Fuquo, she said, so you want us to talk to the Chinese on the issue of 1997 how can you reasonably expect us to succeed because they are savages? And, I, you know, when I read this, I was just astonished that the prime minister would use the word savages. But there is, you know, there's a lot of deep-seated racism on the part of the British um, towards Chinese people and Hong Kongers and a 
huge fear that large numbers of Hong Kongers would flee Hong Kong and settle in England. And I think that was behind many of the decisions that they made. But we also learned a lot about the unofficial's dissatisfaction with the final agreement. They didn't like the, the way that the British negotiated. They thought the British didn't understand how to negotiate with the Chinese, that they didn't understand the language side of it. Uh, they wanted many more safeguards and um, the British were willing to uh, negotiate for. Um, they thought, you know, basically they're very clear. Uh, the unofficials thought the British were washing their hands of Hong Kong, were doing it really fast, and that they were scared of the Chinese and that they weren't bothering to sort of put in safeguards to protect Hong Kong. And one of the most interesting um, quotes that I found was actually in uh, the Thatcher archive from S.Y. Chung, who's a really, you know, the most senior unofficial and later on someone who became very pro-Beijing. But he talked about how, um, how, how poorly he thought the negotiations had gone. You know, this was quite just before the joint declaration was signed. And he said, we gained nothing from the process of negotiating and had been forced into constant retreat. No worthwhile assurances had been obtained. And the Chinese concept of an agreement was worthless. Um, the house we were now building was not only roofless, but had no foundation. So it's pretty extreme language to use. And I found that really stunning, you know, the idea that these people who the British depended on to sell this agreement to Hong Kongers were actually incredibly unhappy with it. Mm. I mean, it's so intriguing because part of Thatcher's makeup is anti-communism. And this is really, you know, the peak of the Cold War and the Cold War that, in theory, the British side was winning. I mean, why were they scared of the Chinese? Like, this isn't a, a developed China. This isn't a, you know, this is China in the 80s where they're just coming out of the Cultural Revolution. It's, it's a poor China. I mean, why on earth were they put off by them? One of the calculations that underlay British, that was underlying for the British was something that Deng had said to Thatcher that, you know, they could march in to Hong Kong any day. They could have marched in that day if they chose to do so. And the British sort of quite, you know, they believed that if it came down to it, you know, China would use force. And so that was something that they were scared of. But I think there was also a great deal of political expediency on the part of the British that they uh, were perhaps not that, that willing to stick their necks out. And, you know, even Mrs. Thatcher herself secretly agreed with the unofficials that the Chinese concept of an agreement was worthless and she did not trust the Chinese. And she even, you know, wrote on the official papers herself, it seems that the unofficials' views of the Chinese are correct. But she still, you know, went on a week later to, you know, announce to, you know, to get her foreign secretary to announce to Hong Kongers that they would be passed back to China. So, yeah, it's it's just a very interesting insight into um, those negotiations and, and an insight which comes, you know, so many, so many years afterwards. But given what has happened in the years since, it's still really um, important. 
on that question, the, at that time, the, the British was, uh, in which respect, we now know that the British was uh, very constrained in the negotiation process by two things. One thing is that actually a, a British historian, Mark Elfin, during the negotiation, he actually formed a kind of a Hong Kong concern group in Cambridge uh, with a number of scholars uh, that has an interest in Hong Kong and try to mobilize their old boys networks uh, who, who know somebody working in the Reagan administration and then so that they try to talk to the Reagan administration to see whether the U.S. can do anything about the negotiation but at that time the Reagan administration even though it is the height of Cold War but they are still uh, in this kind of a Kissingerian doctrine of the work with China uh, to fight the Soviet Union so China is our friends kind of thing so the, and also, of, of course uh, business is starting to grow between the U.S. and China at the time. So at that time, what he wrote about that is in the early 1980s, the Reagan administration's uh, uh, message to them is that uh, there's nothing that U.S. can do, just uh, just work very well with, 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 with Beijing. Uh, so, so U.S. is not sticking their leg out uh, to, to back up uh, U.K. on that. And another point is that uh, the progressive groups in Hong Kong, the NGOs, the young professionals, and the middle class, and the latent Democrats' opposition in Hong Kong, that they are Chinese nationalists for good reason, because of this racism on the British part and, and from, from, from their perspective, and the student organizations in Hong Kong, that they, they think that colonialism is bad, racism is bad, so returning to China is actually fundamentally good. Uh, and of course, and, and now many of these uh, Democrats and later become the anti-Beijing activists after 1989 and after Hanover, some of them are arrested, many of them are behind bars right now, but they have a lot of kind of interviews in the last 10 years or so and say that actually um, their view has been shaped by a lot of people from the Liu's China New Agency and or some people who are, they don't know at that time is a Chinese official to work with them. And, and one example is that very interesting is that... Uh, in the 1970s, they put a lot of this underground Communist Party member as school teacher uh, in some of the elite school. One of them, actually one of them is one of the most prestigious British government uh, school in on Hong Kong Island. And it is not open yet, but everybody knows that who he is and he uh, take care of uh, organizing the student union and talking with students, recruiting students probably into the party. And after his retirement, like uh, 10 years or so ago, and then uh, he become a, on the board of director of a Chinese-state-owned company. It is a post-retirement job for school teacher. Uh, so you can imagine who that is. And, uh, and another one is more open because it is uh, out in open because there's a history teacher in one high school who later suddenly quit his teacher job and become the vice director of the Liu's China New Agency uh, in the 1980s. But when he was a school teacher, he worked with a lot of students, uh, high school, and teach them how to get elected in the student union when they go on to college and university and things like that. So there's a lot of this kind of thing going on. Uh, and the student activists and many NGOs at that time, so they are writing, I read the literature in the early 80s, and all these Democrats opposition and student activists, they are writing against British colonialism and British relief as soon as possible and accept the Chinese uh, deal and things like that. So the, the British is really constrained by this uh, force from the civil society that has a lot of influence of the CCP that they've started to build since the, the 1970s. 
So, I mean, moving on from that, you, you also write that the United Front was was instrumental in setting up political parties in Hong Kong. And, and you mentioned Meeting Point in your book, whose founder, yes, um, yes. you know, Lao Nakong was a pro-Beijing figure. And this group later turned into the Democratic Party. So can you unpack this for us? Are you actually saying that Hong Kong's Democratic Party is originally a United Front body? Uh, not not exactly that. Uh, actually, I, I cite a lot from an excellent uh, feature report by Stan Liu, uh, who is actually uh, no longer here because of national security law, but somebody in overseas managed to save all the articles and put a kind of a online archive somewhere that you can still uh, look at the articles. So they have a speech at the meeting point. It's interesting because the, the Democratic Party formed it uh, by merging two opposition group, one is meeting point, uh, and uh, the other is the United Democrats. And United Democrats is more anti-communist, uh, with Martin Lee uh, and then Sito Wah. Of course, and Sito Wah's story is interesting as he revealed in his memoir himself that actually he was in the Communist Youth League and then didn't manage to get into the party, but his brothers actually is a high-ranked official in the News China New Agency that nobody know about until his memoir and after he died. Um, the, but but he is uh, universally regarded as as a kind of a principled anti-authoritarian, uh, anti-communist figures. So it's the United Democrats. But the meeting point is interesting as the people find out that actually meeting point uh, early on their office space uh, is, a, is a rental from Paul Yip, uh, who is widely regarded as a kind of a head of the, 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 the party organization in Hong Kong. He never uh, acknowledged it and think, but people assume that he's somebody very important in, in, in the United Front uh, world. But he has all this property and to rent it out to uh, this organization, one of its meeting point. Through him, that they also establish a lot of connection with Chinese officials, have this study tour and things like that in early on. Uh, and some of the meeting points people actually later after 1997 become key ally of CY Leung government uh, and some become even uh, high-ranked officials in the Hong Kong SAR government. Of course, there's some other more conscientious uh, idealists there, uh, but they're also uh, now very evident that that, that uh, the United Front work of the CCP has been working very hard to cultivate the group and, and it is the group that came out uh, to support the return to the China the, and end of colonial rule and the public opinion in Hong Kong at that time was clearly against it. I, I wanted to just go back to one of Louisa's points, actually, because much as I'm loath particularly to defend Margaret Thatcher, I find myself in a slightly strange position of doing so, because um, I suspect knowing Thatcher, who was a staunch anti-communist, um, that when she said savages, she may have meant communists party people. I think that's what she meant by Chinese. I don't know that she was making a, a blanket comment on race. I mean, I can't say that she wasn't, but but I, I, mean, I think it was probably meant to be PRC culture and PRC politics, people in Beijing, et cetera, north of the border, that whole mindset. You know, One thing that's very clear, both from my family's stories and from the Q archives, is that there really were fears that the PLA would march into Hong Kong during the Cultural Revolution, take over, and what were they going Going to do so. It's sort of a long way of saying that I think that this fear of absolutely really 
Yeah. They're having yeah. a very weak hand. Facing this massive China is a very real fact, I think, in, in the British considerations behind the negotiations. I mean, they always knew that they couldn't do much. And they were regularly warned by Beijing that if they sort of stepped out of line, that Beijing would kind of tweak the strings and Hong Kong would change. And I think this had gone on for a very, very long time. They just factored it in. So I wanted to say that. But, you know, um, on the issue of all this influencing and interfering, um, it's it's so clear that this um, kicked off very early on. And in, in the research that I've done, um, we've got the figures of approximately um, 8,000 civil society groups in Hong Kong just before the handover. And then by 2017, we've got the figure of over 50,000. Now, you know, some of these groups were genuine civil society groups doing things like gender empowerment and environmental empowerment and, you know, making nice organic soaps and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, this kind of stuff, you know, like, but a lot of them were not. And I have traced that process. And, you know, it's clear that a lot of them were affiliated to the um, Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is a key organ of the United Front. And um, the United Front being one of just four departments under the Central Committee, the Communist Party. And it's very clear, you can see the organizations that they that spring up, um, these United Front backed or, you know, United Front work style organizations in society. And it was this, just this sort of slow, you know, they're very, very good at co-opting people, um, at making often very reasonable arguments. You know, I don't defend colonialism, that's for sure. Um, most people, you know, very few people did probably, except, of course, the sense that life in Hong Kong did offer, you know, legal securities and, and a type of security um, under the colonial government. So, I mean, to, to pick up one specific um, association that you mentioned, um, that's the Hong Kong Chong Sam Association. I mean, what is the possible benefit of that to Beijing? How can they advance Beijing's interests through Chong Sam's? Yeah, we're all about weaving this tapestry of support, isn't it? And you don't have to directly support. And I meant, why do I mention the Chong Sam Association? Not because I'm picking on Chong Sam particularly or the people in their association, but you saw over the years how when something controversial happened politically, like somebody said the wrong, the wrong thing, so to speak, and then had to be, you know, vociferously pushed back against in the pro-CCP media or by all these talking heads in society at that point, um, that all these associations would suddenly put this giant advertisement in one of the pro-CCP media, like Dao Bao, Wang Wei Bao, and suddenly you see like 500 or more associations that most people had no idea even really existed. And one, I was just looking through one of these um, massive lists one day, and I saw the Chang Sam Association, so that's why I sort of picked on it. So my apologies to the Chang Sam Association. I really love those dresses. In fact, I, you know, I got married in one. In fact, when I was at school in Hong Kong, I even designed my school uniform to look like a Chang Sam because I thought they were so cool. Because we were allowed to do that by the 80s. So, no, I mean, it's it was just a random pick. But I think the really the serious point behind all that is that there was this growing, spreading, very clearly targeted, clearly thought out political effort to change Hong Kong society. And I think Beijing always intended it. You know, another thing to mention with all of this was that the whole 50 years business, 50 years, no change, um, because we talked about Deng Xiaoping before. By the time Deng Xiaoping came up with that formula of 50 years, no change for Hong Kong after 1997, he was already 80 years old. Um, I have a friend in Beijing who, a, a Chinese a researcher at, at, the United, at a United Front uh, Research Institute, who you say, well, you know, by the time he was doing that, he was constantly 
completely changing his mind. He was saying, 20 years is enough for Hong Kong, and then we'll just do it. And then, or how about 35? I know, 50. He was literally <laughs> kind of just making it up as he went along. And, and I find that very interesting, too. I think that some of the certainties that we relied on or thought were certainties weren't actually certainties. I don't think they were ever intended to be certainties. And this is just ad hoc uh, BS many times that like at some point people ask Deng Xiaoping what happened after 50 years and he said, oh, another 50 years and all together 100 years. So it is like, like <laughs> but at that time, people don't care because in Hong Kong in the 1980s, uh, the people are confident that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is going to be done with in mainland China in 10, 20 years. So I don't, so why we bother about what happened in 20, 30 years, uh, even after 1989, people still confident that with commercialization and globalization, everything that uh, China will become a democratic country very soon. So it is the assumption. So people don't care about this time time frame. But now, of course, it's different world. I mean, now that we've sort of got to the point of the handover, um, Hofun, can I ask you about two thousand and three, um, which you argue is a turning point because of the massive protests that were galvanized against Article Twenty Three. Uh, I mean, what changed at that point in terms of Beijing's involvement in Hong Kong? Yeah, actually, it is, uh, I witnessed it uh, firsthand because in 2003, from 2002 and 2005, I was teaching in the, the first in Hong Kong, uh, the University of Science and Technology, and later in the Chinese, uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong. So I was there and I, I was on, the, the, on in the protest in 2003. So I see that after 2003, it seems like on the surface, everything is very optimistic that uh, Beijing shelved the Article 23 out of uh, uh, popular pressure and then not Dong Jinghua suddenly find that his legs have problem and then resign. And then uh, Donald Zhang, which is actually loved by and, and have a working relation with a lot of uh, Democrats, actually, and opposition figures and look like a more open-minded, more British-styled uh, technocrat, uh, became the chief executive. And it seems that everything is uh, going to the right direction. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I also see that that uh, the communist uh, united work front work in Hong Kong back in the old days is more patient and actually more strategic in a sense that they really play two hands. On the one hand, on the surveys they pay soft and then and then and then back down. Uh, but at the same time, they are starting to lay the groundwork for wave of assault later. Uh, it was after 2003 when uh, my favorite uh, Chinese scholar that I uh, always help advertising him, that is uh, Jiang Gong, that is the kind of a very uh, influential, also very uh, aggressively nationalistic, and he is the one of the scholars who bring in the, the Lazi theorist Carl Smith to China and helped write the Hong Kong White Paper in 2014 and things like that. He was sent after 2003, right after 2003, to start to talk to scholars. Many of my the friends and mentors talked to him and, and, and tried to not exactly influence people, but establish networks. And then some of them, after talking to him, get invited to become a visiting scholar in Peking U and in, in other the universities through, through his connections. So, so, and also gather information and gather opinions from all walks of life, particularly among scholars and, and pro-democracy scholars. So, and at the same time, that there's a lot of this kind of a 
grassroots uh, native place associations are being cultivated by the liaison office uh, and also uh, the liaison office become much more active in establishing connection uh, with uh, like the principal of schools um, and all kind of civil society associations NGOs and things like that so they are already starting to working with double the effort uh, in establishing the networks and influence in the grassroots of the society um, and in all walks of life in universities in high schools and things like that so you really see that after 2003 that they are establishing kind of a posture of being retreating uh, but at the same time to buy more time uh, to lay the groundwork uh, that later on in which respect we know that all the groundwork for the assault later on so Didi uh, along that theme of um, you know groups slightly less innocuous than the Chong Sam Association you, you write in your piece about the infiltration of the police force by mainland security agents which you said happened directly after the handover pretty well unnoticed I mean what can you tell us the extent of this and, and how did you come to find out about it Obviously, anything that happened after the handover pretty much happened before the handover too. But having said that, mm-hmm. with the police, this is when it became really apparent. And literally, um, in you know, at least 1998, people were starting to receive orders um, from their superior officers to park whatever Hong Kong problem and pay attention to this request from the Guangdong. PSB. And then I describe in the piece some of the things that happened that some of my sources would then see um, that they'd be told to survey a place. And then two weeks later in the, in the newspaper, they'd read uh, that there'd been a break in there or even maybe an attack at exactly the same address. And so, look, people started to put two and two together. And a lot of people, you know, some people got out at that point. Um, I mean, how did I know this? I mean, I'm a, I mean, I guess I'm a journalist and I, I was born, raised there. I spent the last 18 years of my life in Hong Kong. I went to kids who ended up in the Hong Kong police force, you know, ended up working there. I went to school with them. So, you know, one has, you know, networks and friends and that's normal um i think that's normal for anyone and in any place so you know you just have to kind of ear to the ground kind of stuff and that but that was a very very serious it's a very serious issue which you can now trace through to of course what happened then later 2014 and that's in the piece too which is published by synopsis on the synopsis website i'd like to point out that one fascinating thing is that this has in no way shape or form finished of course i mean obviously it's all gotten quite a lot worse but in some ways that we're not paying attention to, I think that there are crossover appointments being made between high-grade science and technology in China and the security and surveillance apparatus and high-level positions now in the uh, liaison department of the Central People's Government in Hong Kong and therefore also in the Hong Kong government. And a lot of it is tied to surveillance issues, and we're actually seeing these some of these patterns coming up. So, you know, at the end of the day, very clever very Leninist, very deliberate, very actually very clear-sighted um, moves, I think, by the party. And we just didn't, didn't see it coming, really. Um, and I think this is a very common experience in, in a few places now in the world. I actually have a question that I was going to ask both of you. And I mean, I guess my question is, did we not see it coming or did we overlook it? Um, and particularly for you, Ho Fung, you write a lot about the underground communist structures in Hong Kong because the Communist Party is still underground in Hong Kong. And, you know, you talk about these things that everybody knows about and knew about, 
But why, why weren't these things sort of more discussed, more reported at the time? At the time that actually that I would say that uh, uh, I'm not nostalgic about it, but this older generation of CCP doing things is more patient actually. And they are putting a more kind of a friendly phrase like in the 70s and 80s that uh, what, what uh, did they talk about of the accelerated uh, after 97 because of the police force that they couldn't do much before 97. The British has a strong grip on, on the on on the apparatus and uh, they they have to wait until after the handover. But in many other sectors, particularly in education and higher education and and schools uh, and civil society, they have been doing a lot of things uh, before ninety seven in a very soft way. Uh, for example, in seventies and eighties, uh, there's uh, these high school student organizations related to Paul Yip again. And now that people know what it is, but back then I when the kind of a uh, high school student back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, I participated in some of the activities because they are holding in the, in this um, the Hong Hum, that's this concert hall, is a huge activities just teaching you how to take exams and how to get good scores and get getting all these kind of a math guru and chemistry guru and all these kind of people and uh, tell you the tips about getting good grade in the examination and also they have this kind of a uh, summer camp activities who's totally apolitical and culture extreme making friends and things like that and besides Cheng Sam and then they many one of the pattern of these many uh, CCP affiliated teachers um, in high school, many of them are that the one Mo Guanlin that later become uh, the vice uh, director, whatever the title is of the News China New Agency that in the eighties. He said that uh, he was taking charge of the Chinese music club um, in the school. So they are doing a lot of this kind of cultural things. And actually, I know people who who approached by him, and then after he he interest in Chinese music, and then they would he would start uh, lending him books about historical materialism, and a step further, a step further, if you are like. Uh, uh, kind of open to it and then in the end that some some of them might be recruited as a party member or whatever and then um, take the examination and enter the civil servant and then you see a lot of people who are quite obscure in the civil servant uh, system in Hong Kong after 1997 they started to elevated get promoted very rapidly uh, through the rank and you know that something is going on uh, at that time people know about it again that answering the question is that uh, on one hand that it seems that it, it is harmless that uh, this this work is like promoting culture, Chinese culture, Chinese music, Chinese clothing, and and uh, teaching kids how to uh, survive and excel in the examination and things like that. Uh, at the same time, again, the strong assumption in the 80s and 90s, even in the US uh, at that time, the assumption is that you don't need to worry about the CCP too much because after Soviet Union, after the wave of democratization, and the end of history is upon us, by the way, and there's business opportunities there as well and there's money to be made uh, the, when China is opening up and, and then you have this connection you know people and then you can go to mainland China to do all kind of business and so this is the, the impetus or the reason that people uh, tend uh, to ignore it and, and see it without paying enough attention and, and having a serious thought about it back in the time. Louisa, can I throw your own question back at you? I mean, I mean why do you think we missed it at the time? In hindsight it seems kind of obvious but, uh, but what's your take? 
I was just thinking about this because Didi and I were journalists in the same newsroom at the same time in the mid-90s, and I don't think we ever did any stories about any of these things, did we, Didi? No, we didn't. And, you know, the, the thing is that you often don't recognise what's right before your eyes. In a way, the familiarity, the sheer familiarity can blind you, you know, and that's one part of it. And I think another part of it is um, um, what I mean by that is, like, you know these people and, and, you, and they're keeping things hidden you know they are not acting in the open and this is the problem with the whole covert nature of the party which is everyone has said and it's obviously true is still not public in hong kong even though china's been in charge since 97 so what's that about so a lot a lot of it is deliberately hidden you know a lot of it is just then very familiar and it's your it's the guy next door and it's like well you know what would that what would he be doing and then you know so you're like a frog in the well and, and you know the water around you is growing warmer and warmer and suddenly you realize oh my gosh this is really actually seriously uncomfortable now so something's going on and i think it's at that point that people sit up but it's also the global environment um that you know basically globally people were illiterate about the ccp or the cpc frankly as i prefer to call it um you know, i think people were illiterate i mean and, and literally so because people don't speak chinese they don't read chinese um they were literally illiterate about the C about the cpc and you know that the entire global consensus formed by the US after Kissinger was all about let's make money they'll change because you know liberal democracy aren't we great aren't we the great the best system in the world liberal democracy is highly normative of course everyone wants to be like us well maybe maybe not right so I think there are a lot of good reasons why why it's taken us time to actually figure out what was going on at the time of course there were always a few voices who were fairly clear um but you know not too many people were listening to them unfortunately now, now how fun can i can i get to you for a final question i mean louisa got thrown this horrible question in her talk where she was asked what's hong kong going to look like in 20 years what do you think it will look like it's highly uncertain and i try to make an argument in my book and and elsewhere so seems like it is a lot of very popular argument right now it seems that the mood is very um, a mood of desperation and people assume that things has ended and i'm a little bit more optimistic but i don't think ccp has already established absolute control in hong kong on the other hand it's still very insecure and they have reason to be so to be very insecure about hong kong so that they do this kind of a draconian national security law but i don't think it can fully control hong kong and then First of all, that uh, I have long story to tell. I don't. I don't have time here to talk about it. Is that why they do the national security law? It's not about putting down a protest. That protest is already dying down in January twenty twenty. Uh, so uh, it is the election and the emerging alliance between the business elite professional elite and the Democrats in the upcoming now cancelled and revamped the Legislative Council election uh, and the Chief Executive election, then what we Beijing, that uh, it seems that the opposition is not only about the Democrats now, not like in 2014, but the business elite and a lot of the professionals are becoming rebellious. So it is what Beijing worry about, and so they have to cancel the election. We already have two examples showing that Beijing is still have two minds about how to do uh, further the repression in Hong Kong. One is that they have been talking about this extending the anti-foreign sanction law to Hong Kong in the early last year. 
2021 uh, because it's already a law in mainland China that uh, companies cannot abide by U.S. sanctions against Chinese officials. Otherwise, they are violating Chinese law. Uh, so they are talking about extending in Hong Kong. If it extends to Hong Kong, all the foreign firms, particularly uh, banks, even Chinese banks have exposure in uh, in U.S. and Europe, will be forced to choose between abiding U.S. U.K. law or abiding by Chinese law. You cannot abide by the law on both sides. So it will be a disaster for many banks, uh, including Chinese banks, having the international exposure. In the end, there's a lobby reported by Hong Kong that actually Dong Chihua is lining up all these uh, people to lobby against it. And in the end, they, they, they shelve it. Uh, so this uh, anti-foreign sanction law is still not applicable to Hong Kong. The other example is this COVID-19 strategy that in the earlier... This year, they have been talking about zero COVID lockdowns, uh, universal testing, just like what they did to Shanghai. Again, that the bankers and, and the financial sectors and, and all these business people are very worried about it. And in the end, Hong Kong rarely escaped the fate of Shanghai. Uh, so uh, when people are saying that oh, Hong Kong is becoming another Xinjiang, which is kind of true, is moving toward this direction. But in the end, it is Shanghai that become like Xinjiang, as the New York Times has an interesting article, get Shanghai, get Xinjiang. That, so the Hong Kong the freedom and everything else is deteriorating, but it seems that mainland is also deteriorating. So the difference is still there, that, that we are falling uh, at the same time. It shows that actually the, the Beijing is still having a, a, a different different opinions about how much further to crack down Hong Kong. And I said that Hong Kong has been in this kind of a fault line in between tectonic plates. Uh, so at times that this uh, tectonic stress build up and then lead to eruption, earthquake, and after a while it seemed quiet. Uh, things settled, uh, but uh, uh, it's a matter of time when this kind of thing blow up again. You look at uh, all other kind of areas, Xinjiang and Tibet, that uh, if we think in a longer time frame, that uh, quiet uh, uh, peace and, and stability, uh, if the identity and if the, the, the grievances are still there, they undercurrent and, and at times that they can erupt again. So there's so much is still uh, indeterminate. So I'm not totally pessimistic about Hong Kong. People talk about the death of Hong Kong many times from 1997 to 2014, but it never died as we feared. So I'm trying to be a bit more optimistic than, than most people right now. Probably good for your health. Um, <laughs> um, Dini, to, to go to you for a final comment, um, it's sort of implicit in in one of your last answers, you had this um, suggestion that, you know, in Hong Kong, we kind of missed it. But what can the rest of the world learn from Hong Kong's experience? Yeah, I mean, we, we missed it. Yeah, we did, though there was no probably no choice either way. So yeah, there's just such a size discrepancy between Hong Kong and mainland China. But the rest of the world, I mean, it's pretty clear to me that what we need to be doing now is to be looking really carefully at Hong Kong and the things that happened there, Some many of which we talked about, and actually move to, I think, protect our own societies from this type of activity, because it is going on in our own societies. I mean, I see, I live in Berlin now, and I see, I see very similar structures 
around me. Now I spot them because I read Chinese. And so I'm like, okay, so I, I recognize that name. I know what this is. Um, I recognize the, 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 the signs and the symbols of this sort of kind of activity, if you like, as well as the language in terms of people, individuals and their, their positions, you know, back in China, et cetera, or even overseas. And I can guarantee you that 99.99% of Germans don't recognize this again, because they don't have, they haven't had the experience. And I think that this personal practical experience is absolutely essential um, towards, you know, understanding what's going on. So I think, you know, and then from there, of course, it turns into theoretical stuff like policy and laws and stuff. And I, and I think we need to do that. You know, I think we need to, for example, say, look, if you want to be some kind of a overseas a professional organization for you know uh, for biophysicists in Germany and you're all from the PRC then you, you can have your organization but you can't say in your organization charter that you are a apolitical um, non-political organization if in fact you are very clearly connected to structures back in China which are run and approved by the party and the same in Germany and I see that all the time around me too here in Germany so we need a massive growth in awareness of what's going on because China is clearly projecting its power through certain uh, social organizations and political structures and and academic and research structures and businesses as well overseas so so for me that would be the lesson um, of Hong Kong. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Didi Kirsten Tablow, Ho Fong Hong, and, of course, Louisa Lim. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.